Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. In this episode, I speak to Philip Beck of Mujing, a China-based e-commerce data provider. As an established player with six years in the Chinese market, Mujing is in a strong position to take advantage of the growing alternative data interest in China. We talk about advertising to Chinese customers, the e-commerce scene in China, and what market trends Philip has been seeing. I began by asking Philip how his relationship with China had first started. My father brought me here. So I'm 62 years of age. My father brought me here when I was eight years old to a place wow. called Shenzhen, which was the, the first city that uh, China actually used to open up the country to the rest of the world. And like a lot of things in China, they do experiments first to see if it's going to fly for the rest of the country. So they built this iron wall around what was a, essentially a, a fishing village. It's a, it's about twelve minutes north of Hong Kong at the moment. Um, this was this was this was Deng Xiaoping in about nineteen seventy nine or so. Wasn't yeah, it? yeah. So he opened up the the country and and said, you know, let's do an experiment in Shenzhen. And there's this sort of expression which is, um, you know, the those in Shenzhen will get rich first, and the rest of the country will follow. And that's sort of exactly what happened. So they did the experiment. They brought people in from lots of other provinces. And, and that's where you know, China opened up. So as an eight-year-old, it was a pretty crazy place for me, watching all these people on bicycles with um, dead chickens hanging off the handlebars as they rode home. Um, and uh, you know, I just thought, wow, it's an amazing place. And it wasn't until... oh. 1995, so many, many years later that, that I came back um, to actually do business here. But at the time with my father, it was just a, you know, just a visit because he was looking at some opportunities for his insurance business at the time. Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that is literally so. And then and you see um, you've seen obviously you've seen Shenzhen more recently. So you've, you've, you as an eight year old managed to see it just on the cusp. And now you can see it at its most at its most developed. I mean, what a what a contrast! What a what a what a privilege for you, I think. Mm. And also, it's it's the home of uh, Tencent, which is a publicly listed uh, tech company that's huge in mobile gaming worldwide, but also is the owner of a social media platform called WeChat, which uh, has a, a digital wallet, a little bit like Alibaba's Alipay, and those two digital wallets essentially account for more than. 90% of the total retail transactions in China because I can't remember the last time I used cash. It would have been at least 18 months ago and I, I just do everything through my one of two digital wallets, which just makes things incredibly convenient. For sure. And it's all out of Shenzhen. Um, so, okay. So, um, Philip, so you you came back to China in, in 95 or, or so. And um, so, obviously, you're, you're, you're very familiar with with. Uh, all things Chinese and China. Why don't we talk about how you got involved in in alternative data, um, which is obviously a, a kind of fresh um, bit of a fresh story, as I understand it, in China. It's not as it's not as deeply kind of um, integrated there. Um, mm. What's your how does where does your relationship with alternative data start? Uh, it actually started with so 
most of my life's been in advertising agencies on the media planning and buying side. And, uh, you know, that was way back in 1976 when I started in, in media. And as a planner buyer, you're recommending to clients a roadmap of activity in media offline back then uh, to reach their potential target audience. And uh, to do that, you need a lot of data to understand consumer behavior so you can then put a plan together that's most appropriate for a client. So from 1976 right through to and including 2005, um, or sorry, 2009, my entire life almost was in advertising agencies, planning and buying. In 1995, I started Australia's first digital media agency with WPP, and that was the sort of beginnings of online advertising, and then did the same for the publicist group in 2005 here in China, when I was the CEO of their their China operations. So I've always loved data and, you know, the insights that it can bring to a brand what how does how is advertising in china as an art how is it different to advertising in say australia the fundamentals are still the same um the world around the same here in china the biggest difference is that online has had an incredible impact on media here uh, more so than in any other market in the world um and so from an advertiser's point of view there's a wealth of data because you've got providers that not only understand what my online media habits are, but they also understand, you know, my purchasing habits through my digital wallet. So they're able to, you know, they, they never make available uh, people's individual information, but they're able to aggregate, uh, I'll call it digital communities together so that if I'm, uh, a competitor to Starbucks and I've got a really good understanding of who Starbucks consumer profile is, then I can go to various platforms in China and say, I want to serve up my online advertising to Starbucks users. And so I can be laser focused in my targeting and reduce a lot of wastage that you know, exists in many other markets that don't have this combination of not just someone's online consumption habits, but also their purchasing habits so that you're able to put together a, a lot more robust um, filtering. You know, in Facebook, they call it a lookalike audience profile, but I'm able to build a much more effective and robust lookalike audience profile for an advertiser in China than what I can in the West. And then the other part is that, um, you know, short video platforms, you know, like you've got TikTok, in the West, but that started, that's a Chinese uh, development called Douyin here. Uh, but short video platforms and the utilization of short video in e-commerce has really you know, accelerated that particular ad format for, for driving sales here. So I think probably the key thing I would say to you, your question would be, you know, the pace of development in China is about seven times the rest of the world, uh, you know, so the number of decisions that I make in one year here as a businessman is equal to the number of decisions I'd make in Australia over a seven year period. So you've got to move quickly and because the market is evolving incredibly quickly. 
and from a from a brand you know they they need to be on top of that otherwise they're just going to get left behind and smashed by competitors that are more agile and nimble so there are huge techno- technical and technological differences. Uh, just um, I, it's it's nice to, to while we have this opportunity to to speak to a, an advertising man who knows China just to just to just to dwell for a second. Do you conceive the audience in a different way? Like when you're trying to attract the attention of a you know your average Chinese man in Beijing or whatever, are you are you trying to you know perhaps an Australian you might be trying to tickle his funny bone with a with a joke or you know perhaps I remember I always remember Australia the the there was there was a much more casualness around you know using slightly shocking swear words because it would attract the attention and you know it's kind of it's all right it's australian it's kind of you know that, it's, it's laid back you know yeah, yeah. Uh, what's what about what about the kind of cultural differences um so i think the key thing to to respect here is is and it's it's slowly evolving but you really have to you can't be you, you can joke around um but you can't be crass and whatever you do, you should be seen to promote, you know, a form of security in a way that, you know, whatever service or brand or product that is promoting itself, it needs to be seen by the local Chinese that, you know, this is safe, secure, I can trust it. And I'll give you a little story as background. Uh, when I first moved to China to live and work here in 2005, and I would go to a department store back then to buy something. The, the thing that uh, threw me at the beginning was, you know, if you're buying just something like a, a simpler thing like a blow dryer or a coffee maker, uh, the local Chinese would go up to the counter. They'd say, you know, this is the one I want because they'd seen it on display. And then they would wait for the shop assistant to bring out the box of the unit and then the assistant would have to unpack the box, make sure that everything was there, then close up the box again, give the consumer a little ticket, and then off they'd wander to the payment station to make payment, and then they'd come back with their receipt, get the box, and someone would normally stay with the assistant to make sure he didn't switch anything out of the box, and then take the box home. So when Alibaba first launched here, you know, an e-commerce platform, the single biggest thing they had to overcome was trust. So you want me to buy something online? Uh, I can see the picture, but uh, you know, is is it going to be the same product when it's actually delivered to my home? And you want me to pay for it before I receive it? So when Jack Ma started Alibaba, um, you know, the whole mechanism he put in place was okay. You pay us. We will hold the money until you receive it, open it, look at it, and you've got a couple of hours to say, yes, I acknowledge everything is here, and then you release the payment to the merchant. And that's sort of how you know, he pioneered e-commerce in this market and got over this whole sort of trust issue. And then you know, it's now the, the largest e-commerce market in the world. I think it's something like 65% of all e-commerce globally is done here in China. Uh, But, you know, 2005, it was nothing. Uh, 15 years later, it's huge. So interesting. So 
in a low in a kind of low trust society where there's there's not that much faith in the other in the other side in a deal then yep. the thing you need to advertise most is 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 trust you know you need to add reliability that's the that's your big selling point type thing and and the the most reliable wins along with price i'm sure yeah and the, there's a a bit like the bbc there's a broadcaster here called cctv which is the equivalent it's a national yeah broadcaster and in march each year they have um, they call it pr day but uh, if you were a brand that was found to be doing anything bad whatsoever um, and cctv you know broadcast all the bad things that your brand does on this particular pr day then you know your business was dead it was it was gone um, and social media has just exacerbated that so Brands can be killed very quickly if they're not doing the right thing. Well, it might be. Maybe maybe that's a, a sign of the maturation. You know, the fact that these watchdogs exist, then maybe everyone will have to up their game and trust will improve as a whole. And, and then then it'll be, um, yeah, more like the Australia or whatever. It'll be, it'll be a different market. Um, mm. Okay, so Philip, let's, let's bring it straight to alternative data now. So yep. um, you... You are the chairman and founder of a co-founder of um, Mujing Market Intelligence, which mm-hmm. you told me before. Mujing means magic mirror. With a little, yep. uh, little Snow White, Snow White reference for the Disney fans there. Um, what? Um, so, how did how did you get involved with Mujing? Why don't you Why don't you take me from there? So, what was happening was um, all the all the research that was coming out. In from the likes of McKinsey and BCG and Credit Suisse uh, around 2010 was that that e-commerce would be a significant channel to market for brands in China, and it was still sort of quite nascent. And you know, a lot of brands maybe back at that time at that time were outsourcing their e-commerce business to a trusted distributor, and most brands have lots of distributors in in China. So they, they really didn't take take it very seriously, and I don't think they believed what a lot of the reports were saying. Um, but, you know, I was just sort of discussing this with some people that I was, local Chinese that I was introduced to, and I said, look, I've got a feeling from all the forecasting that I've done because, you know, as a, a media person, you're often having to forecast for a client what the trends are so you can guide a client to start preparing for, you know, new media or new advertising formats. So I was sitting there, you know, October 2010 with these two local Chinese saying, I've got a feeling that within 10 years, e-commerce for most brands is going to be at least 20% of their sales. And they're going to want to have to understand what's happening in the ecosystem. And, you know, it's really small at the moment but if it gets to 20 percent, that's just going to be insane um and you know one of them uh, this guy dan kong had actually he's local chinese he's got a phd from uh, stanford in mathematics but he wrote various software programs for hedge funds in the us to enable them to process data in a you know more real-time way so that they could you know make better trades and he said you know maybe we could apply it to the e-commerce market here and so initially what we did was developed a, a tool that would allow merchants to bid for 
key words in the e-commerce search so that they could get a better ROI on their advertising. So we actually started a business called DNU, which was an e-commerce marketing services agency. And as time went by, our brand clients and, and retail merchants were saying, you know, can you, is there any way you can tell me what competitors are doing? Uh, so when you, what do you mean by bid? Re- real-time bidding. So they call it RTB. So like ad tech in terms of bidding on, um, because you've got, because the advertising service, it it has all sorts of data on a person. And so um, I think Google has a similar model maybe yes. in terms of, this is a, this is a, we know this much about this person. So it, we, it's probably a 45 year old suburban mother who, who is likely to want to buy, you know, diapers or whatever. Um, and so every, all the diaper companies would want to bid for her eyeballs essentially based on the data that is known about it. Is it that kind of model? Yep. And, yeah. you know, and at the time, uh, e-commerce in China was really just a platform called Taobao. So it was effectively, most of it was consumers selling to consumers so um, or a distributor selling to, to consumers because brands weren't there yet. And a lot of these people were pretty unsophisticated when it came to keyword search and how to buy keywords. You know, I remember one merchant, a client of ours was selling like red dresses, but there were more than 100 Taobao shops selling red dresses. So for him to buy the, the keyword red dress in Chinese, he was getting smashed by other shops that were outbidding him on these keywords. And he just thought, I've got to spend more uh, to get a better result. And what we worked out for him was that actually, if you're in second or third place in the search result, it's just as good as being in first place. And so he's, you know, he mm-hmm. built his business from there. But yeah, so it was these merchants that said, you know, can you, is there any way you can tell us what our competitors are doing in terms of price and volume? Because there's so many of them um, and I can't, you know, our team can't look at this every day and search all the pages. So our CTO at the time um, said, you know, I can, you know, I've got some crawling technology that we could probably use. So, So we started crawling the public pages of the e-commerce websites in 2013. And by that stage, another platform had come along, Tmall. Uh, There was another one that's now called JD.com, but way back then it was called 360Buy, 360Buy. So we started scraping the public pages of the e-commerce websites because the unique thing about the China market versus other markets in the world from an alternative data point of view is that um, the e-commerce websites tell a consumer or a shop tells a consumer how many uh, items of that SKU they have sold because it helps their shop ranking. You know, if someone's searching for a specific item, there are still across every, you know, there's more than 100 million products being sold on e-commerce platforms in China at the moment. What's an SKU, sorry? Oh, in a stock keeping unit. So a brand will call an individual unit. So if I have like Nike shoes, um, they've got a whole lot of different brands, but they might have a white version, a blue version. So each version is called you know, a stock keeping unit or an SKU. But there's more than 100 million products then 
underneath that a whole bunch of SKUs as well. So, you know, these days it's uh, it's a huge market and there are a tremendous number of shops or merchants selling the same brand. And their ranking depends on how much product they sell, uh, how fresh their their product is, you know, how, how in season it is, um, how many negative or and positive comments their store has, how they handle returns. So there's a whole lot of criteria which affects their their ranking in a in a search algorithm. So all of that data, you know, reviews is all public. Number of products sold is all public. The price is public. Um, where the shopkeeper is based is public. So geographic location, the shipping uh, details, you know, how many items they've shipped is public. So we can scrape a lot of data from the public page and put together for a merchant or an individual brand um, a tremendous depth of, of data on what's happening in the market. And some brands want that on a daily basis and others want it on a monthly basis. So our initial focus, unlike a whole lot of other, so we weren't in the alternative data market to start with. We were were in the market of of servicing brands. And it wasn't until the end of uh, 2018 that, that we discovered that, oh, there's this alternative data market out there that serves financial institutions and hedge funds. And, you know, there's a a lot of competitors in that space. Um, So we're we're new to the alternative data market because we we started from the brand end, not the institutional hedge fund end. I mean, it's funny you you were you were introduced to me by um, Amass Insights, mm. um, but you, you that's obviously alternative data providers. But yep. um, it seems to me that there's a there's a story uh, going on with um, in that they're kind of discovering each other because a, a lot of people in alternative data right now are, are talking with excitement about the corporate end and saying you know they call it external data and that's where there's a lot of growth. Mm. Um, but it sounds like. You know, it's 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 always existed, but they just never really these two these two kind of separate civilizations have grown and now are about to meet each other type thing, rather than it being I don't know. It just particularly I mean, even the way you're talking, it's like you began and serving uh, like providing external data to corporates, and then that became useful to the to the financial market. Whereas mm. a lot of what I hear is the other way around. So it's just an interesting that there's that it's happening both ways in a way. So you're basically providing competitor intelligence to other to other retail brands in in China and telling what their competitors were doing. Is that right? Exactly, and that's you know plays to the name of Mujing, you know, magic mirror, you know, magic mirror on the wall. Tell me what's you know, tell me what's happening. So. Tell me why my competitor is fairer than I am. Yeah, why am I why am I getting smashed in you know <laughs> for this particular product line? So because you know brands are really demanding on you know they want to know what's happening with their brand in the in their category, and so you know building up from that base uh, when we were first exposed to an institutional client, you know they were they were just really looking at you know top line platform level data and category level data and some subcategory stuff. But when they uh, started digging into our database, they went, wow, you you can actually help us identify what are the up and coming categories. And for our venture capital arm, we can identify some new brands that we should be investing in that 
may be just online brands only and not in the offline world. So, yeah, um, yeah. So you so you discovered alternative data, um, yep. and that was a that was a world. When you say that, are you picturing particularly kind of Western investors, or is there a Chinese domestic market for this as well, from a financial investor perspective? Uh, there's a Chinese market for it, and you know they're not as uh, demanding as uh, foreign investors. <clears throat> you know some of the uh, the things that we've learned over the the last eighteen months is you know building our our capability in due diligence uh, because it's a lot more thorough, uh, which has been great. You know that's that's lifted the the quality of the business. And the second thing is uh, which we we didn't have in our product. We're almost there. Is you know just understanding that institutions and hedge funds you know search by ticker symbol not by brand name so including you know ticker symbols in our data and then the last thing you know making because these foreign funds or alternative data um, seekers you know are looking a very sophisticated in terms of they have data scientists and data teams they know how to you know look into a database so um, making available our data through a data warehouse, providing them with a data dictionary. You know, we we um, didn't have those tools originally, um, but you know, through the likes of Amass, we've been able to build those out um, and you know be be a lot more confident with what we're providing because we know deep down at a brand level we're super super confident with what we can provide. And it was just, you know, what's I'm, I'm trying to think, having the armor around our data, being the, the data dictionary, being up to answer all the compliance questions and, um, you know, being able to give them access to a data warehouse where they can make their own uh, search queries on the database using the data dictionary and, and retrieve what they want to uh, retrieve. I think, um, I think being... Um, having been doing this since 2014, so having six years of data in what is a very, it, it's a kind of alternative data, it feels like it's just coming to Asia to an mm -hmm. extent, you know, it's, it's, it was, it was started in the US and then it spread to Europe and now um, kind of, it's just awakening in Asia. So the fact that you have that data going back seems to me to give you a, a strong edge for perhaps a quant fund who wants to be able to compare, um, you know, to, to back test against, against the last five years worth of data, things like that. Mm. Do you have, do you have, is, is there an advantage as well in the fact that you're based in China um, compared to, for example, a US based company that's trying to scrape Chinese web data it, is the fact that you're already within the great firewall. Is that a technical advantage or, or, or does it not convey um, particular uh, an edge? No, there's no um, there's no technical advantage whether you're onshore or offshore uh, to scraping. It really gets down to how much you're scraping, uh, because some competitors don't scrape everything. They might only scrape, you know, one platform in detail, and then other platforms a sample, and then extrapolate data from there. Uh, again, you know, we've just found from serving brands that that's not going to work, you know, because they want to understand exactly what's happening at a very deep level on every brand. So the fact that we we crawl everything um, and have very little 
extrapolation in our data. You know, it's all point in time, uh, but because of the depth of data, then you know most clients find it much more accurate and reliable. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps not a technical reason, but um, perhaps the fact that you're based in China gives you a much better understanding of what matters in terms of what to scrape and and you know the the cultural knowledge to actually understand the data better, better and be able to perhaps apply more relevant metadata and give give some kind of give some kind of context. Would that would that be true? Yep, and to also understand that um, you know for some of the platforms um, there are other platforms that are not e-commerce platforms they're social what i would call social commerce platforms but they drive a tremendous amount of traffic to an established e-commerce platform uh you know tell me about that so for example there's uh, one site here called xiaohongshu which means uh, little red book and it originally started as as uh you know a community of females ordinary females telling other females, you know, I've just tried this uh, lipstick and it's really good because, you know, and they're, sh- they're doing a short video describing the lipstick and how you apply it and some of the issues with it. And then there might be another, you know, facial cream where they go, this is crap. And here's why I think it's crap. So uh, originally in the cosmetic space, Xiao Hong Shu started to have a strong influence on consumer sales amongst uh, females between the age of 18 and 24. And, you know, if it was a, a good review, then the ordinary person and later on um, key opinion leaders would redirect traffic to the actual or to an actual store where they might be getting a, a commission uh, from that merchant. So, uh, you know, hedge funds also want to understand, okay, you know, uh, Team All might be the, the largest e-commerce platform in China, closely followed by Taobao. But uh, Taobao seems to be under a lot of uh, threat these days because there are several platforms that drive traffic to it that have suddenly stopped or blocked redirecting traffic to Taobao and now have established their own e-commerce platforms. So the hedge funds want to try and understand, you know, Based on the data we've crawled, what do what what's the future impact on a Taobao from a Bilibili opening an e-commerce function or TikTok, which is called Douyin here, opening their own e-commerce platform? So you, know, you, you need to be on top of the the beta testing by these platforms as they do it, the announcements that are made in the media to go, oh, okay. This is going to have an impact. We need to be able to measure that, not just for a brand client, but for institutions to understand how's this going to change the the market and their opinion of the company's performance and you know how much they're going to pay for the shares if they're investing. I, I'd hate to think what uh, Chairman Mao would make of a of a of a of a something called Little Red Book being. <laughs> Capitalist yeah. lipsticks. It's, uh, <laughs> I don't think I don't think he'd enjoy it very much. Um, uh. <laughs> but um, but so so Philip, tell me a little bit about who is using your. You know, you've just kind of in the last couple of years come to the alternative data um, sector segment. Um, mm. Who is who have you found is most interested in your data? Perhaps 
from a Western perspective, like what kind of what's the what's the profile of the kind of um, perhaps fund or, or who is who's consuming you at the moment and how? So normally it's a fund that already has you know a data science team in place, and you know they're not just looking at the e-commerce China market; they're looking at a whole lot of markets. So you know they're buying in alternative data providers from a whole lot of different sectors. So you know they tend to be large um, funds or you know, a large group that has a very strong, robust um, data science team in place that's vetting alternative data providers for a whole range of different sectors, e-commerce in China being one of them. And then at the other, then at the other extreme, we have uh, smaller funds that are just really interested. You know, they don't have a data science team. Um, they're quite happy to get a, a CSV file or, you know, just log into our, our SaaS platform, which is, which was originally built for brands. So for people that don't understand how to query a database and pull down data. Let me just stop you. Let me yep. just, sorry. Comma, CSV is comma separated value. So it's like an Excel yep. file and SaaS is software as a service. So Yeah. So if someone goes onto our SaaS platform, um, you know, they're, they're not as sophisticated as a, as a data scientist or a person that can query a database, but they can, they can look around uh, at what they want. And at any point, they just click on a blue download button, which then exports the data to an to a Excel.csv uh, file, which, you know, most, of those, most people can understand that. And then they will, you know, play with the data from there. Uh, others just want a, you know, a report straight off the SaaS system. How up to date can they get? Can they get yesterday's values or is it a week or how does that work? Uh, some, so we normally deliver the data on a monthly basis. So the month of January would be delivered by the 10th of February and it would be consolidated point in time. We have some clients though that want daily data. Um, we, don't, we don't deliver it to them on a daily basis. We deliver the daily data on a weekly basis. So on Monday morning, they will receive the previous Sunday to Saturday because we just need a, a day each subsequent day, like on Saturday, we then spend Sunday uh, just making sure that all the data is there. Uh, there's no bugs or anything that we have missed in the crawling. And then we release the daily data on a, on a Monday to the client. Fantastic. So what do you see? Um, I mean, you've obviously got a really good um, eye on Chinese e-commerce trends, having being able to kind of see all the all the all the data flow through your fingers. Mm -hmm. um, what do you see? What what's happening? I mean, so I mean, a big story is that China has not suffered in the last year compared to perhaps um, much of the Western world, largely related to to kind of relative COVID performances and and um, and the fact that a lot of the country has been able to keep going where where others have been locked down mm. um, what what do you see as kind of um broader trends in e-commerce is um yeah any have you got any commentary uh, a couple of things so it's it's the acceleration from offline to online is going to continue uh you know i would at a guess say that you know last year the the retail vacancy rate in china in the offline world was uh, one in five shops. I would say now it's one in four that are just vacant and it's never going to come back because of the migration to online 
we had a nice one of that yesterday in Britain. I, that, I mean, that's a, but that was just a nice example of that when ASOS bought uh, Topman and Topshop, um, which were these two aging, you know, greats of the high street. And mm -hmm. um, ASOS is this online, as seen on, as seen on screen, only online. And they don't want the shops. They just want the, they just want the brands and they just want the, <laughs> you know, the clothes. And sure. they're just going to, I don't know what they're going to do with the shops, just sell them off or whatever. So it's a very, it's very of the moment that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and what you're finding here is uh, a lot more retailers and brands are building experience centers. So they're they're integrating, uh, you know, virtual reality and mixed reality experiences in a store. So it's more a brand experience than a retail uh, presence. But you know, so so the online was accelerating anyway long before COVID. But COVID just gave it a step up, um, which really hurt the offline world. So that's going to continue. Uh, the other thing which a lot of people sort of forget about China is that we still have a very low internet uh, penetration rate compared to other developed nations. And, um, you know, there's at least 50 million new consumers coming online each, uh, for the first time each year. And, you know, that's going to, that's going to continue for at least the next three to five years and also mm. the the adoption of uh, 5g which has been a central government uh, mandate that it be rolled out you know that's that infrastructure is in place now and uh, penetration is growing very rapidly so that's sort of uh, e-commerce and it's also enabled by people having a digital wallet so it's just very easy to buy something on any platform, food delivery service, whatever from your from your digital wallet, the things that are that are going to, um, I think the key changes that that I've seen as a result of COVID, which has helped any e-commerce platform that sells branded goods, is that during COVID, particularly with household care and personal care products, there was a definite switch by consumers from what I call generic house brands to branded goods, you know, goods that they could trust um, because they're a little bit, you know, paranoid about looking after themselves at home during the 76 days of lockdown. And I can't remember who said it, but, you know, if you want to change someone's habit or if someone needs to change their habit, they've got to keep doing it for 10 days and it starts to build a new neural pathway in the consumer's brain. So being locked down for 76 days changed a lot of habits here. Wow. Uh, you know, in some cases, they had an additional 38 days of lockdown. So there have been habits that have just changed uh, forever and that's played into online commerce and the, you know, the key trends are, um, which might sound a bit strange from, for people in the West, but home renovation, home furnishings, small electrical appliances, because you know, a lot of Chinese would never cook at home because it was cheaper to eat out. Uh, now they're preparing meals and drinking alcohol at home. So uh, those, those items will continue to, to grow um, and female apparel was one of the ones that suffered. It's come back, but uh, anything to do with home, education, financial products, yeah, they'll, they'll see significant 
EON growth of more than 25%. Fascinating. No, I mean, that's that's all very interesting. And it, I think it's it mirrors, um, magic mirrors to an extent, the um, like some of the things you see in the West in terms of um, a lot of people wanting to um, create a home office now mm. when previously they didn't. You know, there's you've got to, and, you know, people are thinking a lot more about their home spaces. I think. Right. Yeah. I think one of the other biggest trends is what I would call, some people call them Tao brands, originally from Taobao, but they're brands that only exist in the online world. They don't, a little bit like what you were saying about ASOS, but they're, they're brands that have built themselves in the online world only, and that's where they're going to stay. They love being there because, uh, you know, the cost structure is much less than having offline retail pre um, premises. But the other thing which they do, which more established brands are starting to wake up to a little bit slowly, is they're very good at uh, what I call social listening and looking at all the comments that anyone makes about their product, their online product anywhere and going, wow, we need to change that and actively inviting consumers to say, you know, what would you change? What would you do differently? And then they do that and they launch it on the market. So these incredibly responsive consumer brands um, are building for themselves a big business against very established brands. And that's probably the other key trend that, again, you know, some institutions want to look at that because, you know, they might be invested in a publicly listed brand and then they wonder why the sales in China are suffering so badly because some local nimble competitor has come up against them. Philip, that is fascinating. That's a really, really interesting insight. We've covered a lot of, lot of ground, but it's a really interesting insight to what's going on in China, which we don't necessarily hear so much about um, in, in, in this, this side of the world. So um, thank you so much for giving an insight uh, into China and into, um, into Mu Jing. And so thanks so much. Uh, fascinating stuff and, um, and best of luck with the future. Thanks for the opportunity, Mark. Thank you.